This Wednesday, July the 16th, will mark the sixth anniversary of the death of Hiru Inoda. Maybe you don't know who Hiru Inoda is. He was called the holdout soldier. He was a second lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army, and he was assigned a secret mission by his commanding officer uh, to go to an island, a remote island in the Philippines called Labang. It was 1944, right dab in the middle of World War II. And this man, Inoda, would not emerge from the jungles of the Philippines until 1974. Almost 30 years after VJ Day, that is the end of the war in Japan, which was August of 1945. There were many who tried to find this man. There were many uh, who sought to communicate to him that the war was over. But believing that it was a trick from the enemy, uh, he refused to surrender. He was being faithful to his direct orders. And these were the orders from his commanding officer when he was originally commissioned. It may take three years. It may take five but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. And he didn't. He lived off the land. He avoided capture for 30 years. He kept his uniform repaired and his rifle polished daily. His motto was struggle to the end. Struggle to the end. In 1974, a Japanese official finally located this man and almost convinced him that the war was over. But he would not surrender unless his commanding officer came and gave him permission. And so, uh, the Japanese military found uh, his retired commanding officer, and they sent him to this island. And when they were face to face, Anoda bow, uh, saluted his uh, commanding officer. He bowed to him, and then he laid his rifle on the ground. His war was officially over. Thirty years after he was originally commissioned. And he became a legend in Japan, a hero in Japan. Why? Because he was a soldier committed to his orders. He wrote of the original commissioning. He said, the orders that I was to receive would decide my fate for the next 30 years. You know, as I read that story, I couldn't help but be reminded of Luke chapter 9, where Jesus gives his commissioning orders to his disciples. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The orders that we receive there are to, in a sense, determine uh, our commission, not just for the next 30 years, and not just for the remainder of our lives, but for all eternity.
And that particular account reminds me of that call. But even more importantly, I believe Anoda's commitment to his commission reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resolve, the commitment of our Lord Jesus. Uh, the night before he was crucified, he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished, I have finished the work you have given me to do. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God the Father, having finished, completed the work. What was that work? The work of redemption, where Jesus Christ takes the judgment that we deserve. He takes it in his person and satisfies, propitiates the wrath of God. And all of these realities, discipleship, the call, the commission, Jesus' persevering work, judgment, all of these realities are seen in our text today as we look to Jesus on his road to suffering, the Via Dolorosa. Now, as we've already seen, uh, Jesus has had six trials. He went before Annas, we see this in John chapter 18, and then he goes before Caiaphas, the high priest, who then takes him to the Sanhedrin, and he is condemned by the Sanhedrin for blasphemy. Okay? But they do not have the right to put anyone to death, so they deliver him over to Pilate, the governor. Well, Pilate sees nothing wrong with the man. He sees this man as blameless. Uh, but to wipe his hands of him, he delivers him over to Herod, who mocks him, okay, but he sees nothing wrong with the man, who delivers him back to Pilate. So finally, Pilate, uh, in order to appease the Jews, who could really impact his political future, he condemns him to death. And it's at this point we pick up in our narrative. He is on the road to the cross. He is minutes from being hung on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he is going to be judged. Jesus Christ will be judged by God. In fact, judgment really is the emphasis of this passage. If you look with me in verse 26, we see a picture of judgment. It says, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. He was from the city of Cyrene. That is modern day Libya. Okay? Uh, Mark 15 tells us he was a passerby. So they, they just kind of arbitrarily chose this man. Okay? Picked him out of the crowd. He was there for Passover. Who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now in that day, when you were condemned to die on a Roman cross, one of the first things they would do is they would lay on you the cross beam. Okay? The, the vertical stake was already in the ground at the point of execution. But the cross beam, which weighed some 100 pounds, they would put it on the back of the, of the condemned criminal. And he would have to bear his cross taking it to the point of execution. It was kind of a, a last point of humiliation to defame this person. It was a final indignity, if you will, before the event. But at this point, Jesus has already 
experienced, extended scourging, okay? Flogging. Uh, Now, Luke's account doesn't tell us that. But John does. Matthew does. Scourging, flogging, it's the same thing, was the most horrific kind of beating you could experience uh, by the Romans. Uh, What they would do is they would tie the condemned criminal to a post, all right? And then they would take these leather whips, okay, um, that were uh, interwoven with metal and, and bones, okay? And so they would just begin to whip the criminal, typically 39 times. And it would cut into his, uh, his tissue, and there would be m- uh, much blood loss, okay? In, in fact, so often of the time, uh, the condemned criminal was actually killed before he was crucified, okay? And, and that's essentially what Luke is, is not mentioning, but he's inferring. And the reason we know he's inferring it is because we see here that they seized Simon and they laid on him the cross. The reason they laid it on him is because Jesus was so beaten that he had no more strength to carry the cross himself. And so they take this man out of the crowd. Now what's interesting is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record... The synoptic gospels gospels record this event where Simon of Cyrene takes up the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do all three record the event? Well, first of all, it happened. That's why they record it. But we know that the gospel writers do not always include the same details. Each one of the gospel writers, they're all uh, writing in concert with one another. There is no contradiction. But each one of them has a different theological burden. But uh, in this particular case, all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, record this man taken out of the crowd to bear the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the question, why? Well, I don't think it's defined for us because I think the imagery here is open-ended. Remember, Luke is writing to a disciple named Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus was the most excellent Theophilus, which tells us he was probably a Roman official. Luke is writing to this Roman official who is a new convert to encourage him to persevere in the faith even when all hell breaks loose on you. And it will. You can't be a Roman official and follow the Lord Jesus Christ without it affecting you significantly. Okay? And so he is giving him this imagery. And I think the first, if you want to think about it this way, the first reason... We're given, or Theophilus is given, this imagery of Cyrene, or, or, or Simeon of Cyrene, um, is it would have been a challenge to him. Okay? Remember, throughout Luke, Jesus has, has equated discipleship with bearing a cross. Alright? So we have to interpret text with text. And as I said earlier in Luke chapter 9, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then he goes on and says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And then another example is Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus had said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's an idiom, of course. Jesus is saying, in comparison to my, your devotion to me, your love to, for me, uh, it should almost seem like hate towards your family. And then he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a challenge. This imagery is a picture of what a true disciple is. Okay? Now, there have been those in recent times that have made a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. A Christian is someone who just simply believes, but doesn't necessarily repent. A disciple is someone who believes and repents. Disciples will have greater reward than mere Christians. And let me tell you, that is so foreign to the New Testament that it's damnable. A disciple is a Christian, okay? A non-disciple is not a Christian. This is what a Christian looks like. He bears his cross for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got a student uh, who is um, from Nepal. His name is N.D. Remarkable student. When he was in Nepal, he was a yak shepherd. All right? I asked him one day, I said, who is the greatest predator for yaks? He said, tigers. I said, well, how, how does a shepherd defend uh, yaks from, shep uh, from tigers? He said, a knife. I said, you are officially the baddest dude <laughs> I've ever met. All right? But he grew up Buddhist, okay, in Nepal. And due to the influence of a Christian teacher and a short-term mission group from a church. Alright? He was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 17. And immediately, his family disowned him. Completely disowned him. But he took up his cross. Alright? And today, he's training for the ministry in the United States. You know what he's going to do when he gets his degree? He's going back to Nepal in the face of that persecution. He's going to proclaim the gospel. In fact, he, he pastors a small church here made up of Bhutan refugees who are Hindus. Many of them have been converted to our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. He said in my office recently, uh, uh, several months ago, and he said, this week... When they are baptized, their families will turn their back on them. Will you pray for them? This week, when they are baptized, they will begin to be persecuted by their families. This is costing them everything. And the day after that conversation I had with N.D., here's what he posted on Facebook. Facebook. 
remarkable words. And these, these words were intended, no doubt, for these candidates for baptism. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Because that's the very real potential for these refugees. That their families would have them killed. He says, don't fear them. This is the cross-life perspective. Indy, understand something that's very New Testament. Jesus is not fire insurance. He's Lord. And if He is not your Lord, He will be your judge in the end. And we'll see that later in our text. My student, in effect, was calling these new converts uh, to live out what Simon was demonstrating by the bearing of his cross. And this imagery is, if not remarkable, utterly sobering. This is sobering imagery. If you're a Christian... If you're a professing Christian here this morning and you do not feel the weight of the cross, that is, if there is no sacrifice in every area of your life for the sake of Jesus, then in that area, He's not Lord. You are. If there is no sacrifice for the sake of Jesus in your time, your talents your treasures, then in that particular area, you've taken up lordship. That's a very dangerous place to be. And if you're a true Christian, trust me, He will not allow you to persist in that rebellion. He will pursue you jealously. You are under His loving and gracious discipline. His anger over your sin is your only hope. Okay? So this imagery is a challenge to us. But it's not just a challenge, it's a comfort. Because you see, when you live your life for the sake of Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you're not being persecuted, if there's not pushback by someone, some group, then you are probably not living the cross life. But when you live for the sake of Jesus, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay? This is a comfort to us that this cross life is not abnormal. In fact, in an abnormal world, and this is an abnormal world because this is not the way God created things to be. Because of Adam's sin, because of the fall, things are broken. Okay? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. In an abnormal world, this is the new normal. It will cost you to be a Christian. And this is a comfort to us. Uh, maybe you've not heard of uh, Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a great Bible preacher in Cambridge, UK, in the 18th and 19th century. And there was a power group in the church. Okay? They didn't want Bible. They wanted their ears itched or scratched, okay? Their itching ears. And so when he came in and he restored the pulpit to Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, 
Man, I'm telling you, the, the bottom dropped out in his life. And this power group made up of wealthy parishioners, there was a couple of things they did to him. First of all, in the Sunday evening service, they would not allow him to preach. They took the assistant and said, you're going to preach. The assistant was the one they wanted. Okay? Because he was moldable. He fit their image. And so for the first 12 years of Charles Simeon's ministry in this church, he wasn't allowed to preach in the Sunday evening service because of this power group. And then, more to, even more notoriously, they chained up all the pews. And so if anyone wanted to come in to listen to him preach, they had to sit in the aisles. Okay? And Charles Simeon persevered through that. For 54 years. Okay? 54 years. He brought the Word of God back to that pulpit in that very distinguished church. And it was this verse early on in his ministry that gave him the persevering grace he needed. Here's what he said He said, One day, when I was an object of much contempt and derision, I prayed that God would comfort me. And let me tell you, if you preach the Word of God, there will be contempt, there will be derision, there will be false accusations, because uh, unregenerate people do not like the Word of God. Okay? And that's what they experienced. He experienced. He said, he said and so he opened the Word, and the first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Simon, you know, is the same name as Simeon. Remember, this is Charles Simeon speaking. He says, Simon is the same name as Simeon. It was the very word I needed. What a privilege to have the cross laid on me. To bear it with Jesus. It was enough. I could leap and sing for joy. Lay it on me, Lord, I cried. And henceforth I found persecution as a wreath of glory round my brow. So this imagery of, of Simon bearing the cross is not only a challenge, it's a comfort. Knowing that when you are persecuted, this is not abnormal. It's the very new normal in an abnormal world. But I think this imagery, even more importantly than a challenge and a comfort, it symbolizes our condemnation. Simon Cyrene represents us. Okay? We deserve that cross. Now you may deny that, but you can deny the law of gravity. Alright? Just dismiss its reality. We deserve judgment. Well, I'm a good person. You haven't beheld the holiness and the righteousness of God. If you had, you would not perceive yourself as a good person. You would cry, woe is me. I am undone. We deserve the judgment. Simon bearing the cross is a picture of our condemnation. When we behold Jesus on the cross, we should see that is our sin that, held, that holds Him there. And as Simon brings that cross to Calvary, to Golgotha, and the cross is transferred to Jesus, this is a picture of substitution. 
There's a transfer that takes place where Simon, who deserves the cross, now transfers the cross over to the one who takes the cross in our place. Judgment. Judgment is falling on Jesus for those who deserve it. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But this is a picture of judgment. And that's what makes um, Jesus' next encounter so significant. We've seen a picture of judgment in verses 27 to 30. We see a prophecy of judgment. Look with me in verse 27. And there they followed Him. A great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Apparently, there was a group of professional mourners. Maybe you've seen Good Times, Weeping Wanda. Uh, well, uh, these are a group of professional mourners, and these women would come to the condemned and bring them sponges of. Uh, analgesics that would, or anesthetics that would relieve their pain. It's kind of an act of mercy. Uh, but they would not have been prepared for what they hear next from Jesus. Look with me in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Pray for me, I'm about to suffer. No, that's not what he said. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Ironically, Jesus is saying to these women, You're lamenting for the wrong person. That's what he's telling them. Um, they are convinced, and we understand this, naturally speaking. They are convinced that Jesus and his death is a tragedy. This is a tragedy for Jesus. But Jesus, in a sense, is saying the real tragedy is to misjudge who he is. The real tragedy is to misjudge what he has come to do. Now notice he describes them as daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, that language is used throughout the Old Testament. And what this signals is that they represent the nation of Israel. Alright? They represent the people of God from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying to them, by, by saying this to them, He's saying it to the entire nation, to the entire city. He is saying, judgment's coming to you. And this is at least the seventh time in Luke that Jesus has prophesied coming judgment to Israel. Now, you think that's important? Anytime a writer wants to emphasize something, he repeats something. Well, this is mentioned seven times in Luke. And we saw it in the Olivet Discourse. We saw we looked at several sermons on that. Uh, of course, we know that that happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans, led by Titus, came in and just ransacked the city, destroyed the temple. It was utter chaos. And there's a couple of reasons, at least, that this is important to us. What Jesus says to these daughters of Jerusalem. First of all, Jesus doesn't need our sympathy. He says, don't weep for me. Alright? 
Now, many of the paintings and the statues that we've seen in church history have been meant to provoke just that. Pity and sympathy for Jesus. In fact, that's one of the central reasons for Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. is so that we would feel sorry, that we would have pity for our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the way many people approach the Lord's Supper. We approach the Lord's Supper trying to work yourself into some kind of false sadness for Jesus. To have pity for Him. And Jesus said, yeah, there should be tears. There should be mourning, but not for me. You should be mourning over your sin that deserves the coming judgment. And when we understand that Jesus Christ is not to be pitied, and we understand it's our sin that is to be grieved over, you know what the response will be? Love for Jesus. Gratitude for Jesus. Worship of Jesus. That's essentially what he is telling these these women, these women of Jerusalem. Yes, the cross should provoke tears, but not for Jesus, for our sin. But there's a second reason, more importantly, I think here, that these words are important. Judgment's coming. And as we saw in the Olivet Discourse, Israel's judgment is just a coming attraction of the last day judgment when Christ returns. Okay? The judgment in Israel, the judgment in Jerusalem, is a foreshadowing, a signpost of the greater judgment that's coming. And so the person who truly needs pity is not Jesus who died for sinners, but for sinners who die in their sin. This is serious, okay? And this accounts for this imagery here in verse 29. Look with me in verse 29. He says, Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. This reminds me of chapter 21, uh, verse 23 in the Olivet Discourse where he was speaking on the same theme. Uh, had said in verse 23, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Of course, we, we saw in our study of Genesis that barrenness in the, the Hebrew worldview was disgraceful. It was a shame to be barren. Jesus said, In that day, it's going to be so horrific that you will be grateful. You are blessed that you have not born children. And then notice in verse 30, he says, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that uh, he's picking up language from Hosea there. Now, let me tell you something about Hosea. Hosea is uh, a... 8th century prophet. There are four major 8th uh, century prophets, alright? Amos and Hosea, Micah and Isaiah. Amos and Hosea, they preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah and Isaiah preached to the southern kingdoms. 
And the way we can remember that is when they preached, people said, Ah, me. Amos, Hosea, A-H-I, me, Micah, and Isaiah. And Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom, and he says, judgment is coming. And it's going to come swiftly, and it's going to come severely. And the reason for that judgment is centrally idolatry. There are things you love more than you love the living God, more than you love Yahweh. And that will bring judgment. Social injustice was the second reason. You're living in your comforts and your wealth. You won't sacrifice one red dime for the sake of the kingdom. And then thirdly, there's a real issue with religious ritualism. You think you're impressing God by dressing up in your Sabbath best and coming to the temple. God's not impressed. He looks upon the hurt. You think that is a contemporary message today? I think so. And Isaiah or Hosea says, judgment is coming as a result. And in Hebrew or Hosea 10, listen to what he says. Verse 8, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. It's the very imagery Jesus is using. He's saying that judgment that came on Israel in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, that was a foreshadowing of the judgment you're going to experience in 70 A.D. But the judgment that's going to fall in 70 A.D. is a foreshadowing of the greater judgment that's going to fall when Jesus returns. We know that from Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, there is a prophecy here that uh, the John is picking up that is fulfillment of Hosea. Listen to what it says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals of the, and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Boy, that's not politically correct. Do you know the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming in that day? And He is coming with wrath. Holy wrath. It's the day of judgment. It's the day you will see. It's a guarantee. It's the, it's the most real thing you can trust in. That day is coming. There is a judgment coming. It's the day of the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the language here that he's using. He is speaking of that day. And notice what they want to do. They want to essentially annihilation. They will begin to say the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. They want to be annihilated. That's how severe that judgment's coming. But guess what? You know what annihilation is? It means that when you die, you just you're annihilated. You're just extinguished. There is no consciousness after death. There are many who believe that today. But let me tell you, it may fit your human reason, but your human reason is fatally flawed by sin. Okay? We have to allow the Word of God to chasten our fallen reason. And it seems reasonable to believe that after death, for the, for the sinner, 
annihilation. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach annihilationism. It teaches that after death, your soul will consciously suffer for all eternity. And we know that because they want an end to it and there will be no end. That's what Jesus is saying. Judgment's coming. And the inevitability of this judgment is seen in His final illustration in verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now what in the world, Jesus, are you talking about here? Well, this is talking about fire that can subsume not only uh, dry wood, but green wood. Now, you don't have to be Nate Grote and a, uh, you know, an Eagle Scout. I made Tenderfoot, I think. Um, but you don't have to be an Eagle Scout to know that green wood does not burn as well as dry wood, okay? And the fire that he's speaking of, Jesus is thoroughly rooted in the Old Testament. And fire in the Old Testament represents God's judgment. In particular, God's judgment on Israel. Now listen, in the Old Testament... Um, luxurious, fruitful trees and vines depict a faithful Israel. You see in Psalm 1, the tree by the stream of water, you see it in Isaiah 5, you see it in Hosea 10. Throughout the Old Testament, this fruitful tree is a picture of faithful Israel, the green tree. And yet, in other places... In the Old Testament, a dry tree represents unfaithful Israel. Let me just give you one verse of many. Joel 1, verse 19, where he says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. So you've got this picture that Israel is now a dry wood because of their sin. Jesus is the greenwood. Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel. I am the faithful covenant-keeping Israel. I am the green tree. He's making this comparison. And if the Romans, okay, if the Romans can burn a burn and murder a green tree that is the righteous one, Jesus, what will happen one day to your nation who has become an unfaithful dry tree? But more to the point, and God uses human agents to bring about judgment often, more to the point, if God did not spare the righteous one, Jesus Christ, from judgment, how much more so Will he not spare this unrighteous nation and every unrighteous, unrepentant person in the day of judgment? Now I want you to think about this. As Jesus approached the cross, okay, he's not concerned about his well-being. He's concerned about our salvation. And a very crucial aspect of our salvation is understanding that judgment's coming. 
There were a lot of things I could have think about that Jesus should have said. He should have been saying goodbye to his mom, you know, saying goodbye to the John who was there, asking for prayer. None of that. He's talking about judgment that's coming. Final words before the cross. And he's talking about coming judgment. And there's so many people today who, who think that that really isn't going to happen. In the end, he's going to be like that, that grandfather that just kind of overlooks the grandchild's indiscretions. Okay? And that's one of the greatest delusions in the history of the world. There's a, there's a well-known bumper sticker that's being floated about today that says, Non-Judgment Day is coming. People have them on the back of their bumpers. And I'm here to tell you, Judgment Day is coming. The final words of our Lord Jesus Christ before He's hung on a Roman cross is about judgment. It's a very serious issue. In fact, we need to understand that... This judgment, this wrath on sin, is the only way God's holiness can en engage and subsume all that is wrong, all that is unholy, all that has defiled God's world and defied God's word. It's His wrath. Now, when we think about wrath... What we do is we impute our understanding of wrath onto God. Because let's be honest, when was the last time you were angry for kingdom-centered reasons? Most of the time, our anger is due to selfishness and pride and idolatry. Okay? And that's why our wrath is capricious, it's arbitrary, and it's typically devoted to objects that don't even deserve our anger. Okay? God's wrath is holy wrath. God's wrath is loving wrath. It is good wrath. And I would submit to you today that God's wrath, God's judgment, is as much a proper work of God as is His love. Do you believe that? His wrath is as much a proper work of love or, or, or of God as is His love. And Jesus, moments before the cross, has no difficulty in declaring that God is going to judge sin. The difficulty would be if God didn't judge sin. That means that sin and evil would triumph. Do you realize that? And this... This was actually sung about in the Old Testament, in fact. For instance, in Psalm 96. When was the last time we sang about wrath? <laughs> Seth, write us a song. Uh, when was the last time we, we, we sang about judgment? They did in the Psalms. It's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a hope in the Old Testament. And that day was the hope when God was going to vindicate His name by judging sin. Here's Psalm 96. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the, Lord is, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Guess what? That's a song. They're singing about judgment. 
Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. This is a person who has a God-centered view. Okay? A kingdom-centered view. Alright? And this view is such that he is provoked to celebrate God's coming judgment in righteousness. His judgment, His wrath, is an expression of His righteousness that will one day be a broom, if you will, that will sweep the universe clean. That's what His wrath is. That's what His judgment is. It is a broom, okay, that's going to clean it up. Clean up all the filth, all that which is unholy and harmful. And so certain is this wrath and judgment that mere moments before the cross, Jesus is speaking about it. But here's the good news. As certain as that judgment's coming, that's what the cross is. The cross is about judgment. Because on the cross, God is going to be true to Himself and judge sin. But He's going to judge the sin in a substitute, in a representative, a covenant head, a covenant representative. Just like Adam represented us in the garden, we have the last Adam representing us on the cross. And God is going to pour out His judgment on this man for those who would repent of their sins and bow the knee to Him. And let me close here with these words. I believe Simon got it. I believe Simon the Cyrene got it. I believe he beheld the suffering Christ. I believe he saw the suffering servant dying on the cross. I believe this symbolism of bearing the cross got inside his heart and his affections. And I believe he was transformed from the inside out. Why do I believe that? Let me give you a couple of verses. In Mark's account of this very thing, Mark chapter 15. Hear what Mark says about Simon. Or rather, his sons. Mark 15. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark is writing to Roman Christians... He's writing to Roman Christians. And he says, this man, he's the father of Rufus. He's the father of Alexander. How did the Roman Christians know Alexander and Rufus? Because they were game changers. It's because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where did they get their faith? There's only one place. They got it from their dad. They got it from a man who'd been transformed by the cross. And then you have in Romans, and we'll close here, Romans chapter 16, you know, that closing chapter where Paul is greeting the Christians in Rome, the same people that Mark's writing to. 
Listen to what he says. Greet Rufus. Who's Rufus? Rufus is Simon's son. And he's a leader in Rome. In the Roman church. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother. Who's the mother? Simon's wife. Where's Simon? Likely dead at this point. Who has been a mother to me? So you have a man who's transformed by beholding the suffering Christ. He takes that saving message home, okay, to Cyrene. And he leads his wife to the Lord Jesus. He leads his sons to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people turn the world upside down. That's what it's about. You know, Hiru Anoda, his, his steadfastness, his perseverance, okay, in, the, in the, the midst of difficulty, it made him a hero. But the Lord Jesus Christ, his steadfastness, his faithfulness in the midst of the most heinous form of persecution, it makes disciples. Disciples like Simon. And the only proper response is to respond like I believe Simon responded. Are you a disciple today? Is there a sacrifice for the sake of Jesus in every area of your life? In those areas where there is not, it is time to repent and bear your cross. Or maybe you recognize, I, I know judgment's coming, I believe it. Yes, the, the prophecy of Jesus and his judge, the promise of judgment there is one thing and it's true. But the cross is the, is the sure proof in HD that judgment's coming. And I realize if I were to die today because of my pride and my unbelief, I would die under the judgment of God. And I want to hide myself in Jesus. That's the glory of, of the Christian faith. There's nothing you can do. But to repent of your sins and flee to Jesus. And when you flee, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. Past, present, and future.